Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Legal Glass Ceilings. Uh, my guest today is one of Great Britain and Northern Ireland's best-known lawyers. Her career took her to the very peak of the UK judicial system as president of the Supreme Court, and the cases she decided, along with her colleagues, made it from the front pages of the newspapers. In 2004, she became the United Kingdom's first woman Lord of Appeal in Ordinary, after a varied career as a professor of law in Manchester, law commissioner at the Law Commission, and a judge when she was the first woman to be president of the Supreme Court. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Lady Brenda Hale to this podcast. Good afternoon, Lady Hale. Good afternoon, David, and very nice to be here. The purpose of this podcast is to look at the careers of people often very early in their careers, or sometimes, in the case of you and me, sort of towards the end of our careers, and to try and explain to people how we both came from an essentially non-legal background, and in your case, have had a stellar career as a a lawyer, and me, um, a slightly more varied career, Um, but um, both of us have done interesting things, you in particular, and then try and inspire and support those who, who want to follow in our footsteps, though no doubt in their career, the law will be an incredibly different place in which to work. You describe in your fascinating book, Spider Woman, A Life, which I strongly recommend if anyone wishes to to learn more, how you grew up in Scroton, a little village five miles outside the medieval town of Richmond in Yorkshire, living in the school buildings in which your father was the head teacher and that you came from a family of teachers. So, can you help us as to what led you to study law at university rather than following the family footsteps in front of the chalkboard? Well, possibly one of the motivations for choosing to study law at university was so that I wouldn't become a teacher. <laughs> uh, I, of course, deeply respected what my parents did, uh, but I didn't think I would be any good at school teaching. As the person who was the class SWAT, I was often asked by my fellow pupils to explain something that they hadn't understood the teacher explaining. And I wasn't any good at that. And so I thought, no, uh, school teaching is probably not for me. But the reason for thinking about law was that, of course, coming from a family where education was given top priority, the ambition for me and both of my sisters was that we would go to university, even though that was pretty rare. girls in those days and even go to Oxford or Cambridge if we possibly could. My headmistress thought I was clever enough to go to Oxford or Cambridge but she didn't think that I was a natural historian, history being my favourite subject at school. And so she said well what else might you apply for? Now she was rather keen on economics and I wasn't in the slightest bit keen on economics which I had found rather tough in a theory sense but I had been absolutely fascinated by the constitutional history of the 17th century. And so I said, what about law? And to her eternal credit, my headmistress did not say, nonsense, girls don't do law. Or if they do do it, it's because their fathers are solicitors and your father isn't a solicitor. She didn't say that. She said, oh, that's a good idea. And so it went on from there. It's amazing how little encouragements to us in our life sometimes are so pivotal at those key moments because if she'd said to you oh no I I don't think that's a good idea it's it's a terribly tough profession for a woman you might never have followed the career path 
Well, I was a rather uh, pert uh, schoolgirl, as she called me pert. So I didn't take too kindly to direction. So I might have ploughed on regardless. But obviously, if she had been very discouraging, it might have been a different story. In the 17th century, the division between the role of the monarch, the executive parliament and the courts was being worked out in pretty dramatic ways. And I've been fascinated through my career of, of seeing how the sort of tectonic plates of interplay. And of course, as you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to be, have been in parliament, have been a minister in the executive, um, mm. and now in a very lowly matter, a, a judge. Do you think that the tectonic plates have moved between the executive parliament and judiciary across your career? Or are they roughly in the same places as where they began? That's an extremely interesting question, which I probably have to think about before giving a proper reply. Uh, but I don't think that they have shifted enormously over the course of my career, which I suppose is more than 50 years now. I think we still have a parliament which makes laws, uh, a government which runs the country and is accountable to parliament, and a judiciary that uh, interprets, applies the laws, enforces the laws, and from time to time has to tell the government or other public authorities to keep within the powers that the law has given it. I think that basic structure is still there. I think that in the late 1960s, which was just after I had finished studying law and while I was a university teacher, the courts did become bolder in their control of the government, the executive. I mean, there were several uh, important cases where they told the government that what had happened was not within its powers in a way that might not have happened a couple of decades earlier. So to that extent, the power of the judiciary was being wielded. It was always there, but it was being wielded more. And then we had the European Union, which also increased the power of the judiciary because under the European Communities Act, uh, the judiciary had the power even to disregard provisions in acts of parliament, totally unprecedented in our constitution. And I suppose you could add the Human Rights Act to that, although I don't think the Human Rights Act has really altered the nature of what the judges do. It has altered the content of the laws that they have to apply, but the way in which they apply them is much the same as it had been before the Human Rights Act was passed. So, no, I don't think so. There's always a risk, though. Yes. And interestingly, just to pick up on those two examples we gave, the European Communities Act 1972 and the Human Rights Act 1998, arguably the increased powers that the judges were exercising were powers that Parliament chose to give to the judges. Absolutely. Yes, we, we weren't grabbing powers that we didn't have. <laughs> we, the European Communities Act was absolutely clear, although it took quite a long time for everybody to realise this, uh, that if there was uh, a provision in an Act of Parliament which was incompatible uh, with uh, a certain type of European Union law, well, then the courts had to ignore that and treat it as if it hadn't happened. 
That isn't the case under the Human Rights Act, but the Human Rights Act, as I said, does alter the content of what the judges are talking about because it makes the fundamental rights in the European Convention into rights enforceable in UK law, which they weren't before. Can I ask you a few questions about the position of academics in the law? Because you went from university to Manchester to work as an academic in the Manchester Law Faculty, and at the same time you you were practicing at the Manchester Bar. And what I'd be interested to know is your, your view is how valuable academic law is in this country beyond the process of just teaching the next generation of lawyers? Oh, well, that's another interesting question. I do think that there is value in having people with academic experience also taking part in the justice system, because we do bring to it something slightly different from what is brought by people who have practiced either as litigators or as advocates, you know, people running cases in the courts can bring. Obviously, they bring a wealth of experience of litigation cases, how they are handled and how to handle them. But we can bring a more overall understanding of how a particular case fits into the bigger picture of the legal system in the particular context in which it's applying. And that is valuable, especially in the appeal courts where points of law are being decided. It can have its value seeing things in their context, in first instance trial judging as well. You know, if you've read a lot about child care and child psychology and the sociology of the family and so on, and you know family law quite comprehensively, that can help with one's deciding what's the best solution for this particular family. So, yes, it can bring things. Is that the question that you're asking me, though? I'm well, not entirely sure. I mean, yes, it is, because it, in, in many ways, I was asking a very open-ended question about how academic law can can benefit law as a whole. Another area that I've found as a practitioner is that academics have the ability to sit and think about cases in a far more leisurely and structured way with possibly far more background than we do when we're either an advocate or possibly even as a judge, when you've got the pressure of, of decision-making against the clock. And quite often I read criticisms of cases that I've been involved in. And I think the criticism is entirely justified, but I think, well, yes, but I devised that argument at four o'clock in the morning and, <laughs> and it was just desperately trying to, trying to get through oh, the cases. Oh, yes. And of course, it is the job of an academic to criticise decided cases or to criticise the argument which counsel has put forward in a decided case. That, that is part of their job. Another thing that a, a particular type of legal scholarship can do is to discern the underlying principles which can be derived from a mass of case law and therefore to write the leading textbooks on the subject. I regret to say that that skill is not so much valued in academic legal circles as it used to be, but it's still the most important thing that academic lawyers can do. I mean, we all grew up, did we not, on vital textbooks which were written by academics. Indeed, I, I did a case about restitution very recently, yeah. and, and restitution is an area where, if it wasn't for the 
for the academics, the cases would be utterly impenetrable. Well, in the olden days, the same would be true of tort and contract. Yes. It was only because people started bringing everything together and explaining how it all fitted that uh, we had textbooks that made it possible to do any teaching. Talking about bringing things together, can I bring you to the time when you were at the Law Commission doing the groundbreaking work that led to the Children Act 1989? I think it's almost impossible for those of us who practice law after 1989 to understand how difficult and complex and and contradictory law was relating to children prior to that act. Mm. But there's one thing that I really would be interested in. Was there much resistance to legislation being put on the statute book, which made the interests of children the paramount consideration when the courts were taking decisions? That is, elevating their interests over the interests of their parents. Well, the answer to that is no, that was not in the slightest bit controversial because it was already the law. Uh, It was there since Section 1 of the Guardianship of Infants Act 1925. And so we weren't making any new law uh, by putting the interests of the children above the interests of their parents. And in fact, there had been a House of Lords decision which spelled out that courts making decisions about the future of children must be guided by what is in the best interests of the child. And the interests of their parents are relevant to that, but they're relevant insofar as they point out what might be the best interests of the child, rather than relevant simply because they are the progenitors of the child. And that was a case that was decided by the House of Lords before the Children Act, and and has since had to be reinforced by a couple of Supreme Court decisions, but there we go. Now, the thing that the Children Act did was bring together a mass of different pieces of legislation which dealt with how the courts decided the future of children, not only in disputes between their parents or between husband and wife, but also where the state was wanting to interfere in the family life in order to protect the children from harm or to some extent deal with naughty and incorrigible children, but that was very much a side issue. And there were loads of different ways in which a child could be taken away from the family, which is obviously unprincipled and wrong. You you had one law for the rich in the high court and a completely different law for the poor in the magistrate's courts, that sort of thing, which was very common in family law in those days. And so we were able to get rid of all of that and have one set of principles and procedures and outcomes which were available in all the courts having jurisdiction in family matters. Are you at all surprised by the longevity of the Children Act and the way in which the broad principles that you established, as, for example, the threshold for public law, Mm -hmm. have survived and continue to be celebrated? (laughs) I don't know whether I'm surprised. I'm, I'm very pleased. I mean, obviously, things in the Children Act have been mainly expanded upon you know, it has, it has become more complicated than it was. But there's usually been quite a good reason for doing that, not invariably. But the basic structure and principles have remained the same. And I don't know, there are some things that last. Maybe yes. it shows that it was not badly thought out. I mean, it was very carefully thought out over some years by a very expert group of people. Someone would hope that it would stand the test of time. I confess to being a great 
supporter of the Law Commission, and I was involved in another groundbreaking piece of legislation, which is was what became the Mental Capacity Act. Um, so was you know, I. Uh, and, and so were you. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I remember arguing getting the mental, the mental incapacity bill into the legislative programme of the government. And lots of people said, what on earth is this all about? And why is this important? Um, but it struck me that that was, there are, those are two pieces of legislation which are hugely socially relevant that affect the vulnerable, but which emerge from a combination of academic and practitioner thought at the Law Commission, consultation with interest groups and a political process. And then what came out was a sort of a synthesis of the two, of all those strands, really. Is that a good way of making law? It's a good way of making certain sorts of law. Yeah. Uh, what we're talking about here is law which deals with people's rights, people's fundamental rights and obligations and status, all of which does need to be rather carefully thought through with the input of all of those different things. It shouldn't be a matter of party political controversy. I mean, sometimes it is, but it, it's unfortunate if it is, because really yes. everybody ought to be trying to get the right result for the people concerned. So I think it's a very good example of something which benefits from the sort of interdisciplinary consultation and research-led work, which is what the Law Commission does. Plus, of course, some input from governmental concerns. That was the, the Children Act was a genuine partnership between the Law Commission and what was then the Department of Health and Social Security. And uh, it was a team effort between the two institutions. The Mental Capacity Act, slightly less so, but of course, what it was dealing with was a subject matter which was, with one exception, the responsibility of what was then the Lord Chancellor's Department. Yes. And the Lord Chancellor's Department in those days definitely felt a responsibility for the law, and especially the sort of law I'm talking about, and was receptive when it got a Law Commission report recommending changes to the law. It was receptive and took them up and ran with them, basically repeating the consultations that the Law Commission had done, but that's fair enough, um, so that the government could own them, uh, and then promoting legislation which did almost everything the Law Commission had actually recommended that it be done. The, the, the bits that didn't hit the statute book, which we had recommended, which had to do with vulnerable adults who might or might not be incapacitated, which of course was a, a different departmental responsibility, didn't get legislated. And then of but course of course, in some instances, the courts have pursued that through the common law. They have. In cases like Riel and others. Yes. Um, oh yes, they have indeed. This, this was... Um, well, the then president of the family division had quite a, a crusade about that, which is fine, which is fine. Uh, I think he thought that it was a great shame that the House of Lords case, which had prompted our work on mental capacity, uh, had not done what he thought it should have done. And so uh, he set about <laughs> attempting to, uh, to do it himself, which is fine. I think he was counsel for the official solicitor in that case, wasn't he? He was, these, yes. <laughs> these come full circle. Can I ask you about something different? Can I ask you about the role of women in the profession? Because in advance of this discussion, I raised this with a, a, a colleague of mine who said that 
achieving a sustainable career as a woman lawyer was not as difficult as it was 40 years ago. But it was still far more difficult for most women than most men. So she thought there was progress, but nothing like equality. And I wonder if you think that's a fair summary of what's happened. Well, there's definitely been a lot of progress. Um, you only have to count the numbers of women entering the legal profession and staying in the legal profession and achieving senior positions in the legal profession. All of those have improved dramatically during my professional lifetime. Of course, we haven't yet got to a stage of parity where men and women are equally represented at the top of all branches of the legal profession. They may be quite close to equality in academia, actually. I haven't counted, but entirely possible that there are as many women professors as there are men professors uh, in academia, but I, I haven't looked at that. Uh, but in terms of the top of the solicitors, barristers and judiciary, well, judiciary, it's about a third, but it's more at the bottom of the judiciary than it is at the top of the judiciary. QCs, of course, it's still under 20% of women, but it has been going up at a percentage point a year for the last decade or so. Partners in law firms, again, it's about a third and probably less when it comes to equity partners who share the profits of the firm. So it's still not equality. Now, what's the reason for that? It's the same reason as in many other professions, that it's very hard to combine family responsibilities with the sort of 100% time commitment to a career uh, that sometimes is necessary to get to the very top of it. It's hard to do. It's not impossible. There are, as I say, well, plenty of women who have done that. But it is, it is difficult. And what's required, obviously, is for the profession to take a long, hard look at itself and ask whether the things that it is demanding of its sort of middle-ranking people uh, are really the right things to be demanding and whether they're making the best possible use of the talent that they have got. I think quite a lot of law firms are thinking quite carefully about this. The bar is to some extent thinking about it, but it's particularly difficult at the common law bar, as you know, the sort of barrister's practice where you can't plan ahead where you're going to be and what case you're going to be doing very consistently. That's the sort of thing that makes it really difficult for, for women to, to stay the course. But the encouraging thing, it seems to me, is that people are now realising that a lot of these able women who have started as barristers or solicitors and have found it difficult to combine their professional lives with their home lives, their family lives, have tended to step sideways into salaried employment. So they have gone into the government legal service, which I think is more than half women and women at the top, at local government legal service, magistrates advisory service, in-house counsel for commerce, finance and industry, where it's a little bit easier. It's still high pressure, but it's a little bit easier and more predictable to combine with your domestic arrangements. And we find that women are, I think, 60% of that sort of salaried, non-private practice lawyers. And so we ought to be looking to them and, and applauding them for their achievements uh, and recognising that their work in the law is just as important 
as the more visible work that is done by traditional barristers and solicitors' professions. I agree with all that. And I'd add to that list a number of women I know who have moved into the lower levels of judicial appointments and then making their way up. Yes. So they might start as a, a tribunal chair and then get appointed to being a circuit judge and possibly then go on to be a high court judge. But having started a judicial career in their mid-30s. Yes, that's, it's still not very common to start as early as that, but it's, but it's happening. And we still don't have a recognised career progression for judges, uh, which is one of the recommendations that all the reports recently about judicial diversity and improving it that they've all said that we need a more recognised career progression for talented judges who start in a comparatively junior judicial post, but show their worth and ought to be given a way of moving onwards and upwards. But isn't there also an issue that men, just as women coming into the profession now, don't want to work 18 hours a day, don't want to work all weekend, and don't want to be in a position where they never see their own children. And my impression is this is an awful lot stronger amongst the younger generation of men than it was um, certainly at the time when I was battling to take time off to, to see my small children. My impression is the same as yours, particularly when one is talking to a group of younger people. So if I talk to a group of university students, it's very apparent that the young men are equally interested in work-life balance and don't expect that if they have a partner that she will take the major responsibility for looking after the family. That's how I think they start out. But it can be quite difficult to maintain that if you get yourself into a particular professional uh, milieu where it is still expected that people Uh, work very long hours, even if, in fact, they're not actually doing anything very much for some of that time. And it tends to be expected of the men or even taken for granted that the men have got the commitment to do that sort of thing. Whereas sometimes with the women, if they ask for certain types of adjustment that will make their lives easier, that is seen as a symptom of a lack of commitment to the firm or to chambers which it isn't at all a lack of commitment. It is simply trying to make life work. And so one does need to attack some of the attitudes higher up in the profession. Well, I agree. When I was running a team of 30 lawyers at uh, Mills and Reeve, I used to go around at six o'clock and send everybody home because otherwise they had the temptation to stay there all all night and and work. And, you know, I, I just thought that was not sustainable. And occasionally I go around chambers at six o'clock and send the young lawyers home and tell them not to to (laughs) (laughs) over-prepare. Good for you. Can I ask you something slightly different, which is you were clearly an academic star from the beginning. And many young lawyers listening to this will be academically competent, but not academically at the very top. Not everybody can be at the very top. But for those who are academically competent, what other skills do they need in their locker to be a successful lawyer? Because being a successful lawyer is not just about being clever. (laughs) In fact, certainly many occasions in my career, having a first-class degree 
which was then pretty uncommon, was not necessarily regarded as the best qualification for getting articles with a magic circle firm or getting into the best chambers. There was a view that people who were clever enough to get an upper second class degree, but not so clever that they were going to get first class degrees, were more reliable as practitioners. You do need a certain level of competence, obviously, to be a successful professional, but you don't necessarily need the sort of brain that gets you good marks in law exams. I mean, these, these are, there are different bumps in people's brains. I mean, if you want to be a successful transactional lawyer, for example, and that must be more than half of all lawyers must be transactional lawyers rather than litigators, people dealing with cases that may or may not go to court. Transactional lawyers deal with doing deals. They deal with people's transactions. They make wills. They transfer property. They do all of that sort of thing. They negotiate contracts, set up mortgages. All of that sort of thing requires a different skill, the skill of negotiating with other people, uh, with working out what the best deal, which is going to suit both sides, is. Now, litigators have to do that too, but it's, it's the essence of transactional work. And that, I think, requires different bumps in your head from the ones that are required to be a top academic. There are so many different ways of being a lawyer. It's a lot of different jobs, and they each require a slightly different, no, sometimes very different skill set. And there will be something for everybody. But what I always say to young people is, do find something that you enjoy doing, because enjoying what you do is the route to being the best you can be at it. And that is the route to success and progress. And some parts of the law require an enormous understanding of people in difficult situations, empathy, and ability to listen. And I sometimes think those are actually more important skills, the ability to listen, to to empathize, to understand what it feels like, than the pure academic understanding of intellectual property law. you're, You're right. Anything that has to do with individuals obviously requires the ability to listen to what that individual is saying, but also what they're not saying and how they're saying it, and to try, insofar as you can, to put yourself into that person's shoes. But retain your objectivity. It's like being a doctor, isn't it? Doctors have to, well, the best doctors can get their patients to communicate with them in a way that enables the doctor to make a sound diagnosis of what the problem is and then work out the best way of treating it. So they have to be able to empathise, but they also have to be able to retain that degree of neutrality, which will enable them to look at the problem dispassionately rather than be too closely emotionally involved in it. Now, that's an important skill for lawyers dealing with individuals as clients, important skill for judges dealing with cases that involve individuals. You have to try and do both. And doctors will have one patient in front of them. But we as lawyers have to understand more than one perspective. We need to understand our client's perspective. If we don't understand our client's perspective, we're hopeless. But we also have to understand something our client may well not understand, which is what looks to somebody else in a different position with a different perspective to be an entirely reasonable but opposing position. And how do we bridge the gap? This is absolutely true. 
it's particularly true in family cases, obviously, but it is true in other cases too. You have to be in a position to understand where the other side is coming from and to attempt to explain that to the client in a way which will help you and the client then work out what is the best line to take for the client. I mean, that's the job, is it not, of, of a litigator and advocate uh, to work out what is the best outcome that the client can reasonably expect and then try and work out a way of getting at it. Yes, and, and since most cases settle, um, mm. civil cases, one needs to work out where there is a possibility of common ground that yeah. neither party is at that point prepared to consider. One of the frustrations for people coming into the profession is the perception that all lawyers are posh, upper middle class at least, and that there are few lawyers, successful lawyers, with marked regional accents. Do you think this is a problem in, in, in our profession? <laughs> if that's what people think. It's a shame because, of course, the, the practice that I did and some of the judging that I did was up in the north. And I come from the north. And there are plenty of people in the law in the north who have quite recognisable regional accents. And so I don't think people should be in the slightest bit bothered about this. It's, it's something that may have been the case in the past. And it is still the case that the law has got more privately educated people in it than there are in the general population. Uh, and so it may, if you take a sort of stir the pot and work out <laughs> what the mix is, it may have a, a rather different mix from some other uh, occupations. But I don't think anybody should be put off by that in the slightest, because there are plenty of successful lawyers who uh, don't weren't privately educated or don't sound the poshest of the posh or even posh at all. Indeed. Um, uh, speaking as somebody who came through the comprehensive school system, I've never felt it was a particular drawback. You just kind of learn to adapt. And uh, I've been sitting this week in Wolverhampton in the Crown Court, and I can assure you, and for anyone listening to this, that the accents of the uh, defendants in Wolverhampton were mirrored by the accents of some of the advocates. Mm. Um, and it's a joy. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, and you'd find the same if you went to Newcastle yes. uh, or if you went to Leeds or if you went to Manchester or Liverpool, you would find the same. So hold on to your heritage, I think, is the, uh, is the mm. message. Um, finally, I have to ask you this. What is the single best piece of advice that was ever given to you as a young lawyer? Ooh, that's difficult. I think the best piece of advice, with the benefit of hindsight, was not when I was tremendously young. I must have been in my latish 30s when I was asked if I would become an assistant recorder. And this is, a, as you know, a very junior part-time judge in county courts and crown court. And I was 10 years out of practice by then, full-time academic and might have thought that this was a rather scary thing to do, as indeed it was a rather scary thing to do. But I decided that I would do it. But the best piece of advice I got, of course, was from the two of my professors who advised me to go for it, girl. And if I hadn't gone for it, of course, I wouldn't have ended up top judge in the United Kingdom. I mean, that's very interesting, because the, the lesson to learn from there um, is one that I've, I've 
found myself doing, which is not to be too afraid to try something new, because if we throw our heart and mind into it and focus on it, it's amazing what we can achieve, even if we can't think we'll achieve it at the time. Well, I agree with that. And my answer to imposter syndrome, which I think we all suffer from from time to time, or most of us do. Oh, certainly. Uh, we, in don't spades. All, we don't always confess to it, is somebody thinks you can do this thing, maybe a job or maybe whatever. Somebody thinks you can do it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So it's your job to try and prove them right. But no skin off your nose if it doesn't work out. Because the other thing that might not be apparent to young lawyers certainly in my case, maybe not in your case, I've been as much forged by my failures as by my successes. I learn more from the cases I lose than the cases I win. In indeed, I've appeared before you twice at the Supreme Court and I've won one and lost one. So, and I certainly <laughs> learned far more from the one I lost than the one I won. <laughs> well, uh, I think we all learn both from our successes and from our failures. We, we, we learn through experience what works, what one should try and do and what one should try not to do. You never stop learning, I think, uh, throughout a professional life. It would be terrible if you did. Um, and you're quite right. Failures can sometimes lead to success as well. Of course, it was a well-known thing you know, when I was in practice at the Manchester Bar. There were some solicitors who preferred a barrister who went down fighting than a barrister who actually made a very sound settlement that got more than he would have got if he'd fought the case. So... Fighting sometimes, uh, but losing uh, spectacularly can sometimes also uh, bring you rewards. Well, Lady Hale, you're somebody who has, I can't imagine ever losing at anything. Oh, um, yes, 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 yes. No, no, I, <laughs> but, have lost, I have lost lots of times. Yes. But, After um, all, think, think of the times that I have dissented and not succeeded in persuading my colleagues of the justice of my view of a case. Oh, well, I, I am forever with you on the McDonald case. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Thank <laughs> um, you. Uh, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you and listening to your enormous body of wisdom. I'm sure those young lawyers who are listening to this will have got a vast amount out of it. And thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's been good fun talking to you.